Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. What's up? Bitcoin seems to be breaking its correlation. It's, it really hasn't been moving much in, in, in uh, considering what the market has, the, the gyrations of the market. I just, Bitcoin just seems to be steady in this little range that it's in. It's interesting. Yeah. I do, go ahead, Ant. Well, I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, I'm not an economist. You'd probably answer it better than me. For me, I, I, I'm still in that camp where I just, I, I understand that like humans are on this planet and I also understand that like, you know, uh, the velocity and the direction of things and how money is, you know, connected in certain ways. And I understand all that kind of part, I think, peripherally. Uh, but I just never really thought, I, I, I'm in that camp where I just don't think that Bitcoin's correlated to anything. It's so new and so like novel and, and there's still so much that we don't understand about it really, as much as we think we do. And I just don't really, I mean, I, I really need one of those economists brains to like explain it to me. Like, you know, do we really believe that Bitcoin is really like correlated with like the stock market or like, you know, global economics? I, I guess that's not the right word. With, yeah, the, with, the, risk, with the risk asset. I don't think an economist will be able to explain it to you because I think you were right in the first thing that you said, which is it's a different phenomenon. It's a bigger phenomenon than purely an economic phenomenon. It is, it's a monumental invention that's going to, or discovery, some people are upset about the word invention, but it's a monumental thing that's going to last for generations. It's going to change how we view a lot of different things. And so it's not a simple supply and demand or macroeconomic question or any of these other things. And as, as you were saying, as it grows, it takes on new properties and new characteristics that perhaps again, were inevitable, but not foreseeable without the benefit of hindsight. So we've got this thing unfolding and growing in front of us and no wonder, and it's not like anything we've ever seen before. So no wonder it's very hard to explain whether for an economist or any of us up here, right? How many of us, have been surprised, delighted, but surprised, uh, but by what we've seen at various points in time. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. To oh, sorry, Nico, go ahead. Yeah, and, and to just to add to Tomer's point, I think safety and like hammers this point home. And in reference to the economists, like most economists are Keynesian economists. So, you know, when you introduce something like Bitcoin, sorry, there's like construction downstairs. I apologize. Um, but most economists are, you know, Keynesian economists. So it, they have a bit of cognitive dissonance with what I've seen. So yeah, I don't really consider them, you know, people that I would really listen to 
when it comes to Bitcoin. I, I would really listen to some of the, or at least in my case, some of the most influential people for understanding Bitcoin are actual Bitcoiners. You know, they're the ones that are able to see through that facade and really explain, you know, how how significant Bitcoin is and how much of a pivotal shift this uh, what we're all living through right now. You know, so yeah, totally agree with you, Tomer. And and I also agree with you, Tomer. And I think the only thing that we can look to in recent history that is comparable at all, where uh, economists got it completely wrong, um, you know, was the was the rise of the of the internet in general uh, in the '90s, the early '90s. I lived through that. I missed I missed that completely um, because I just don't have the foresight or didn't have the foresight. I certainly feel like I had the foresight with uh, this technology, and you are correct; it is technology. But that all said, um, there is a you know when in the in the infancy infancy of any technology that is introduced into market, particularly ones that are game changing. I think we can talk about electricity. Um, we can talk about the steam engine. We can talk about the internet. We can talk about nuclear power. We can talk about uh, this new technology, this new monetary technology. These things are manipulated in their infancy by um, market forces, uh, by the existing, and in this case, by the existing monetary system um, as we transition to a new monetary system. And I, I really think there has been some correlation. There has been some um, significant impact, uh, which is one of the reasons that we don't typically talk about price. And the only reason that I'm talking about it this morning is that, I mean, I've been watching this for pretty pretty closely for almost two years now. Wow, you know, I've been here almost two years. But, I mean, I've definitely seen that there's been a correlation between between markets and and the price of Bitcoin, and I'd be I'd be a um, I'd be a liar to say that uh, you know I hadn't observed that. And it, really, in the last couple of weeks, maybe the last three weeks, four weeks, it has really been acting differently. I mean, that's just my own my own observation. And I just you know today in particular, I mean, and and in these in, when in this last couple of weeks when we've had these huge swings in in the market. Bitcoin just really hasn't done much, which is a good thing. I mean, I think because hopefully it's becoming a the risk off asset that uh, uh, the risk off bearer asset that we all think that uh, it should be. Yeah, I uh, yeah I echo all that, Peter. I think those are good comments. Uh, agree with you that you know usually we don't focus on the price too much, but the. Uh, uh, you know, decoupling, at least for now, I, I do find it interesting for a few reasons. One, just because it had been so correlated uh, in the past, particularly in 2022. And one of the big knocks on Bitcoin from the traditional finance, the Wall Street crowd uh, in 2021 and into 2022 is, oh, this is just correlated with the NASDAQ. You know, it's just another tech stock. Why, why should I own Bitcoin if it just goes up and down with, with tech stocks? Um, which is also interesting because, as I've pointed out in the past, that Wall Street traditional finance crowd, uh, five years ago, they said it was a scam and a Ponzi scheme. And now they're saying it's just another tech stock. So that speaks volumes in and of itself. But, you know, if we have the end of this year and Bitcoin, you know, doesn't moon, but let's say it stays in the, in the 20s or something, 
Bitcoin will be towards the top of everyone's asset performance charts. You know, if, if it's up 40-ish percent on the year, people are going to have to look at that and say, okay, if I was an asset allocator and if I was successful in 2023, what assets should I, I have owned? And being up something like 40% is going to be towards the top of that list. So um, obviously that's, you know, Bitcoin will kind of do its thing whether or not that happens. But I think it matters because it gets back on the radar of the Wall Street traditional finance crowd. And, and a day like today is interesting, too, just because, um, as some of you alluded to, markets are down, you know, one and a half to two percent. Bitcoin's kind of holding in in the high 23s and one day a trend does not make, but uh, it's interesting to follow. I think to, to echo some of what was just said, uh, I think that Bitcoin, in order to moon, as, as we would say, uh, or become a more generally accepted asset, has to go through uh, to tear the veil of disillusionment uh, because there is this huge illusion on Wall Street and in, in markets in general that somehow it is equated to companies that have positioned themselves to custody digital assets. And until that tail, until that veil is torn and we recognize Bitcoin as the asset and not as a company that holds the asset or manages the asset, then we're still going to be hovering in this twenty twenty five thousand dollar range, and it's going to take some time for these Keynesian economists to to recognize that this is this is not a company like you said before, uh, but it is something special and different than what a company stock would be. Well said. Well said. It very different. Um, also, I will say, I think it was Peter who made some comments about. Uh, the internet and how that kind of came to rise in in mainstream perception. Uh, Peter, you just reminded me of one of these videos that's out there. I think it's Bill Gates with David Letterman, and he's explaining what people can use the internet for. And David Letterman just responds with, you know, what? Well, we have the radio and we have the post office, and you know, he he keeps highlighting things that exist in the legacy system. And he's like, why would we need the internet? It just allows us to do the same things we can already do. Um, and he's, he's almost laughing at Bill Gates, like, you know, what are you talking about? So those are always interesting to me. Anytime you see how a new technology is perceived by people when they're trying to understand it from the legacy system. So I would definitely recommend that video to anyone if they, if they haven't seen it. You could probably just Google Bill Gates, Internet, David Letterman, and something would pop up. Okay, shall we get into some uh, news topics? Uh, we can hit some of these um, fairly quickly, but um, one that I wanted to hit on, maybe we'll hit this one first since we, you know, we kind of have a higher level discussion that we've started with today. Uh, I did want to at least chat about some of these comments from uh, Augustine Carson's where uh, he, <laughs> so funny, he literally said, the battle has been won, you know, so dramatic. Uh, a technology doesn't make for trusted money. That's another quote from him. And then a third one is only the legal historical infrastructure behind central banks can give great credibility to money. So, you know, those are some pretty <laughs> amazing comments to come from someone, especially in, in a seat like, like his. Uh, I, I have some thoughts on this, but let's, um, Tomer, would love to hear what you have to say first. 
I mean, what, what it boils down to is he says, trust me, trust me. Like, you should trust us because you should trust us. It, it's very circular reasoning. And it certainly doesn't uh, look back on the history of whether or not they should be trusted. So he says, he, said he, he dismisses technology saying it cannot do a thing without explaining why it cannot do a thing, which is be, tr be trusted. So he, he, he's either ignorant of what it is that technology can do, because we kind of trust technology like all the time for lots and lots of things. So to say that technology can't be trusted is in and of itself just something that flies right in the face of our day-to-day -day experience. You know, planes, we trust planes to fly. We trust cars to start and drive. We trust computers to add numbers correctly. We trust Twitter here to enable us to have these conversations. And none of those things are as robust as the thing that he's actually saying you can't trust, which is the most reliable piece of software in the world, uh, which is Bitcoin. So one, one of his premises, this you can't trust technology, is completely invalidated by our own firsthand experience. And then the, the other piece, which is, but you can trust us, trust us. And the more one studies the history of central banking and fiat money, the less likely one is to trust them. Uh, Sam Callahan, who uh, has written several pieces, he's got a really nice one on why, uh, why CBDCs will not increase financial inclusion, uh, certainly speaks to what might be coming from central banks. But there's so many good pieces out there about how we haven't had uh, great results uh, from trusting in the central banks. We've had global devaluations of our savings and our currency, and, you know, and we can't save, and so we end up investing. I'm saying that in quotes because we end up largely gambling our savings to try to preserve them. Um, and and this is what Bitcoin fixes because its its supply is capped and it is uninflatable, and the rules don't change, and so there's nobody that you have to trust. Uh, let alone someone who thinks that technology can't be trusted. So I, that's probably all that I have to say. But I, I think he lives in a different world. And it's obvious that he he lives in that world because that's he's he's in that bubble, right? He goes to, I presume, fancy banquet dinners of bankers who discuss how valuable they are uh, for the world and don't actually encounter the consequences of what they're doing to other people in the world. They're presumably quite blind to the consequences of inflation. They, they can just raise their fees. They do well under inflation. How does that make you feel, John, as a former banker? <laughs> uh, well, I really like Tomer's point about, you know, trust the idea that you cannot trust a technology is really just, you know, flawed from the get-go. So for him to, you know, make that comment, I think it's just, it, it's flawed logic. And it would also fly in the face of monetary history, at, at least as Bitcoiners understand it. You know, we point out many, many times that it is not a requirement of money that has to be centrally issued, that it has to be government backed. And if you look at the history of money, obviously precious metals being used as money, uh, that was the case. Now, people will have different er interpretations of monetary history. And they'll say things like, oh, we were just, you know, lost as a society when we didn't have government backed money and things were more volatile and 
and less stable. And of course, Bitcoiners say the complete opposite. But that's, you know, what they need to believe in order to come to this conclusion that, well, the government has to issue uh, the currency. And, yeah, unfortunately, that's the, the conclusion that they come to. One other thing that it just made me think as I saw some of his comments was all of the nonsense that we saw in the crypto world in 2022. I think that's, you know, what allowed him to make a lot of those comments. You know, he's like, look at all these flawed things, these projects that tank, these platforms that blew up, you know, the battle has been won. And he kind of says it on the back of that. It gives him some ability to say that. And the average person might believe it to some extent. So I think that's one thing I would just point out that a lot of that crypto nonsense has set back Bitcoin adoption to certain extents. But I will offer one other point that I um, had when uh, was given to me when I was chatting with someone recently who was a little more uh, open to the idea of what's going on in the crypto world because he made the point that it's better to have these thousand flawed designs and failed experiments in the crypto world than have all these fanatical people trying to change Bitcoin. And I thought that was an interesting take, um, but I'll, I'll just leave that there. would love to know if people have, have thoughts on that, but um, Ant, let's go to you. Thanks. Yeah, I just laughed my ass off when I saw that. You know, remember what I was saying the other day about like timing attacks and like the timing of these cycles and like, you know, just the, the when you really zoom out and you look at these actors and remembering what I said, that we're like in this one way only accumulation phase, and these guys, like guys like him, they're used to having levers that they can control and they can twist them that way and this way, move the dials that way, that way. And then here's something that's happening literally around them and, and quite frankly to them. And, and he's trying to put these levers out there. You see it. He's like trying to like, what are we doing right now in Bitcoin? We're like, fighting about ordinals we're like fracturing there's like you know people have you know grown wary of this long bear market and there's like starting to see, we're starting to see some signs of like the trend flipping and we're right at that point in the cycle where we're about to get a, i mean i've already seen a bunch of newbies coming in i don't know about you guys but we're gonna get a lot more because bitcoin keeps doing its thing it took some heavy hits got down there below 20 and then here we are and i'm not saying it's not going to go back down below 20 before we come back out but i'm just saying it's like it's funny the timing to see this guy come out with this type of, you know, like FUD article. And then that specific headline, like that specific statement, like the battle hasn't even been fought yet. <laughs> like it's so early to come out and say that. It was hilarious to me. Yeah, right, right on. We've got a lot of hands up here. We've got, uh, I see Brandon, I see Surfer Jim. Welcome, guys. Great to have you. I think Peter had his hand up. Uh, first, so we'll go Peter, Brandon, then uh, Surfer Jim. Peter. I, I just wanted to add to what Tomer was saying because it's just it's just spot on. And you know, not only do we do you know do these people you know feel like they have to trust somebody else, but the the problem all emanates from the fact that, and this is also what you, some of what you were saying, John. The, the the problem all emanates from the fact that there are bugs in the previous. Uh, monetary technology, which was precious metals, which was gold. There's there's a bug there. Uh, there's there's lots of bugs, and they're not features. They're bugs, and so that 
that monetary technology, someone was able to figure out how to um, get an edge, how to uh, be able to to manipulate the system uh, to their benefit. And to what uh, Ant was just saying earlier, this is the first time in history that nobody is able to do that. There's, there's, there's no, well, there's no bugs that uh, certainly that we have found yet that um, have not been addressed. Um, it's all features. And so, you know, it's, it's a new paradigm um, in this technology. And uh, also to echo what, what Tomer said earlier, we have no idea where this technology is going to go and, um, you know, what, what it is going to reveal as, as this thing unfolds. And I think that that personally, I think that that is one of the, one of the great mysteries of this technology and being so early and being able to watch it. It is just really amazing being able to watch this thing unfold. Yeah, right on. Um, you, this also reminds me of the, the quote that goes something like the best lies have an element of truth to them. So, you know, if he is going to point out flaws in prior monetary systems with precious metals or even point out some of the flaws in what we saw in the world of crypto in 2022, you know, Bitcoiners would probably agree with a lot of that. But if you if you see his comments, he doesn't even separate out crypto from Bitcoin. So it kind of gives him the ability to just say, look at all this nonsense happening in crypto. And it's not a complete lie, but it's, it's certainly not the whole truth. Uh, Brandon, what's up, man? Good morning. Yeah, you know, good morning, John. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, two, uh, I mean, everyone's making phenomenal points. I mean, and, you know, kind of what you were saying, it's the battle hasn't been fought yet. And that's what's hilarious. And all they have is just trying to dissuade people, you know, right? Trying to shut down um, the, the fervor in a way and uh, off ramps, on ramps. And Augustus, I mean, these guys, they have, they, they're not even, uh, it, it flies in the face of the CBDCs too, right? The, the technology argument, um, well, that shuts down the CBDC. So why are you going forward to CBDCs? You know, so that's just, that's hilarious. And, the, and these guys are used to just waving their hand and having that much hubris and power. They can just wave their hand at something and it goes away. And, and that's where you're, it's the drowning man in the water. You're going to see these guys really start to falter this decade and really start lashing out more and more and more. We've seen this throughout history. These people at the top, they lash out more and more and more, do more uh, onerous things to their people because they're losing power, they're losing grip. And it goes back to, and again, in a little bit of defense in a way of like the, Muff, the Buffets and the Mungers and the, the Augustus Carson, these guys that, and someone just mentioned this, maybe think of this, this system, the fiat system is designed, you know, you go all the way back, you know, 100, 200 years, you go back to the General Board of Education with Rockefeller, everything I want. Uh, workers, not thinkers. These guys understood, hey, if I control in the fiat world, I control that that currency printer. I got to hobnob with a few people and I have the power. And my family, we understand we just need to buy assets, right? We, we buy railways, we buy properties, we buy the assets that hedge the currency printing and we grow wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And the average person has no idea and they'll never get that. And that's the insidiousness of that fiat system where Bitcoin, all you have to do with Bitcoin is save dollar cost average, go to work every day, save more than you spend each month and you get ahead. You can get ahead of the doctor that's you know spending his tits each month and losing Bitcoin each month. You will get wealthier in five, 10, 20 years. So that's just the insidiousness of the whole system. And these guys, a lot of them don't even know. I think Luke Roman said it recently within uh, Natalie's interview she did with, uh, with Preston. And you know, he just said, it's not really anyone's fault necessarily. It's just human nature, right? We've all let it get this way for a hundred years. You know, the, the, the Rockefellers, everyone, everyone just kind of let it go by. It's just human nature. It's cyclical. It happens. And now we're, we're just, we're happening to start cleaning it up with a way we've just never been able to, 
uh, we just haven't discovered it, right? We always had the ability. Everything's always possible at any time. Humans haven't discovered it until now. Awesome. Love that. Uh, great points made there. Brandon is spreading this crazy idea that humans could work and save money and build wealth without becoming their own portfolio manager on the nights and weekends just to have a chance at saving their wealth. Uh, really crazy idea there. You know, why would we ever want a system that allows for that? Uh, let's go with Surfer Jim and then uh, Tomer. Good morning, Surfer Jim. Hey, John. Good morning. Um, uh, hard to follow all the intelligent comments that have just been made, uh, but I'm, <clears throat> I keep this macro perspective on a lot of this stuff where Bitcoin comes along, people think of it as an investment you know, they're going to buy in and sell someday. So they're already seeing it incorrectly. Um, the, the world has never really lived through the real-time adoption of a new monetary unit. Um, and so I would say most people still don't really see what Bitcoin is. And uh, the fundamental analysis that you would do for, uh, you know, traditionally for a stock or a bond, you couldn't do that with something like Bitcoin. And so I believe a lot of people have missed what Bitcoin represents over a long enough period of time. Uh, and those are the people who, for the most part, the people who are maintaining the existing system are all the ones that have benefited by it for so many years. And because they have so much power, they don't believe it can be uh, interrupted by some, some code. Uh, but as people look at Bitcoin, they come to realize that it's in their own rational self-interest to own some. The, the game theory incentives within the Bitcoin network are literally uh, for every individual. They're not good for groups. They're not good for governments as much as they are for individuals. And every individual, whether they're part of a government or not, one day is going to see this. And my overall perspective on all of this is that when the money that is paid to all the enforcers, whatever country it's in and whatever level of enforcement, whether it's a judge or a prosecutor or a police officer with a gun, when that money fails them, then their eyes will be open. But it's, it might be quite a while for much, much of the, the people that do that in this world, certainly the larger economies and the, and the dollar economy, that it's going to last the longest. Uh, we see currencies collapsing already in different countries, but it's not enough to wake up the masses around the world. But I do believe that one day that's going to happen and the dominoes will fall quickly at that point. Uh, I can't say, nobody could say how long that's going to take, but it's not going to stop. Bitcoin is the revolution that everybody on this planet needs, and most people just don't know it yet. And of course, the people in power don't even want to accept it yet. And so you got guys like Karstens out there saying how, you know, some technology is not going to replace money because we're so good at money. Of course, we know they're not, but the rest of the world doesn't really know that. They can't see the difference between the money that they've been forced to use and a free and open source protocol for money that was discovered and, and given to the world 14 years ago. People think that's too crazy. And yet when you dig into it, like we all have, it becomes absolutely obvious. And the revolution is not going to stop no matter what they do. It's only a matter of time. Thank you for letting me spew my thoughts for today. I love it. I love it. Really well said. I love the high level thoughts there. Uh, you reminded me of a few different things. One I'll just note quickly is Caitlin Long, uh, she puts out fantastic content, really good tweet threads, but she had one where she just mentioned uh, the native currency of the internet, uh, Bitcoin, has been invented and it, it won't be uninvented. 
I just like that, that short way of saying that. Um, so those are great comments there, Surfer Jim. You also reminded me of, you know, you talked about people who are kind of unaware of some of these trends that are happening. There's a couple of things as more a reminder for myself that I'd like to highlight with conversations I've had with friends in the past week or so. But before we go into that, we've got plenty of hands up here. So let's go to Tomer. Yeah, just really quick, I, I have to jump off for another call, but I, I think there's a meme in the Bitcoin space that says, you know, Bitcoin has already won or we've already won, which which we're, you know, Augustus Karstens is saying the same thing now. It's like fiat has already won uh, because FTX has lost. And so there, there, there's this posturing that goes back and forth, uh, but clearly neither side has actually already won. And so it, it definitely speaks to the fact that there is an acknowledgement by both sides now that there is a battle, right? Like we, we've been saying we've already won while we were ignored at first, but now the other side is saying they've already won, which, which is acknowledging the existence of this side. And I, I think the other, th one of the other things that Ant made in his, his point that I just kind of want to come back to a little bit is, you know, that there's this notion that there's division or disagreement inside of Bitcoin, but that's, that's actually part of how it works, right? There's no disagreement as to, what the latest block is and what this exact bit for bit state of each and every single block has ever been like we're we're all united in agreement and we're trying to figure stuff out so as we try to figure stuff out we think well you should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing this and some of us say well if you can do it then that's all that matters whether you should or not is besides the point um, and we're figuring it all out but the longer we go the more we start to realize that it is the case that we're all actually an agreement on the on the most fundamental things which is what's the state of the system and what what is the purpose of the system and and when you've got something that clear that so many people in the world understand and agree on that's an, that becomes a really unstoppable idea and you might say we've already won because of that i'm going to drop off but i'll try to come back a little bit later if i can sounds good tomer thank you for that and just uh, before we go to Sam and then Peter after that, just piggybacking on some of those comments about this being a battle that's being fought, um, Brandon's comments about you know what happens when the existing power structures are being threatened, they kind of lash out. I would just highlight um, a piece called, it's like you know 10 or so pages probably, so it's not super long, but it's called The Bitcoin Reformation. And it's by Tur Demeester. I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, but if anyone's not, would highly recommend you check that out. Uh, it's a great way to learn some history about what was, hap what was happening around the, the 1500s, 1600s, when uh, the Protestant Reformation was happening, which was kind of uh, a pushback against the power structures at the time, which was the Catholic Church, and how there's actually some similarities between what we might be seeing with Bitcoin. So. I think that's a fantastic piece. Would definitely recommend people check that out if they have not. Um, let's go to Sam Callahan. Good morning, man. Good morning. Um, yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts about this uh, Gustin Carson's uh, piece in Bloomberg. Um, you know, one of the things he says is he anticipates a quote unquote strong statement from the Group of Twenty for strengthened regulation of the digital asset sector. And right now, um, if you go to Janet Yellen's Twitter, you know, there is the G20 happening right now with finance, finance ministers and central bank governors in India meeting. And this is the problem. This, he knows 
that there's likely to be regula- regulation around digital assets because they're in the ears of these G20 leaders and policymakers. These are unelected bankers. And this is how CBDCs came about in the first place. If you, if you track, if you do the research and you, you have a paper trail, this all started back in 2020 um, with the Saudi Arabian presidency of the G20 when uh, the Bank of International Settlements whispered in their ears and said, hey, we need to, quote unquote, improve cross-border payments. So we need to uh, start exploring CBDCs in earnest. And that's when all the research started to really get in, uh, started to accelerate. And so they know these central bankers are just in the ears of these leaders uh, kind of forcing these policies. And in the same piece, he says that these CBDCs, according to the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which are working with the biz, they say that they're going to improve efficiency, but it's just not true. If you look at the problems with cross-border payments in terms of efficiency, the frictions include fragmented fragmented data standards or lack of interoperability, complexities in the meeting the different compliance requirements of the different jurisdictions, um, compliance with AML, KYC, and uh, different data protection purposes, and then different operating hours of the different time zones. So the CBDCs would do absolutely nothing to address those frictions and cross-border payments, but they keep uh, saying that they, they have these benefits of improved efficiencies, and he says improved financial inclusion. I just wrote an in-depth article about how CBDCs would do nothing to promote financial inclusion. So you really got to pick apart these things, these arguments for these CBDCs that they say because they're simply not true. And then the last thing is, um, you know, he talks about the battle is won. I just always find it funny when they just arbitrarily say like, all right, it's been 14 years the battle's won, even though Bitcoin's completely functioning. And if you look at any of the fundamental metrics of Bitcoin, it's going up and to the right still. And it's just like, are you crazy? The rate of debasement in your fiat currencies are, are accelerating at a rapid pace. While the Bitcoin fundamentals are going straight up. Like, what are you looking at right now? I mean, it's insane to me. And I, I just, this is why we just keep building because little do they know, like, it's like when they say we already won, it's because you look at this giant mountain of debt that's denominated in fiat currencies that they will have to debase in order to keep the debt Ponzi alive. And so as long as Bitcoin continues to work, then the central planners will destroy themselves. And I think that's why, you know, we say Bitcoin has already won, but I think we don't want to be complacent. We want to keep building and keep improving it, keep improving privacy and keep uh, making it more functional for everyone. So those are my comments around that stupid, stupid piece from Carson's. Sam, that is awesome, man. I love it. I love the content, love the energy. Uh, everyone definitely check out the piece that Sam wrote about CBDCs and why they will not promote financial inclusion. Um, I will uh, uh, pump Sam up a little bit here. I think he's one of the best voices out there on CBDCs, unpacking what they actually represent not what uh, the powers that be tell us that they're going to represent. That, that article that we just referenced, that is not the first thing Sam has done on CBDCs. He's written pretty extensively about it. Um, he's been on multiple podcasts discussing it. So if you want to hear more awesome thoughts like that from Sam, I would definitely recommend you check out his content. Let's go to uh, Peter, and then we'll go to Nate after that. So I kind of started this conversation talking about, you know, noticing that maybe Bitcoin is decoupling from, uh, you know, the, 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 the tra- from TradFi. And it's, it's interesting. Um, and then, I, you know, Ant made these comments about, you know, 
people in the Bitcoin community are fighting about ordinals and fighting about, you know, this and fighting about that. And there's some, some bickering that goes on inside of this. And, and, you know, every morning, um, not every morning, but usually when I'm, when I'm on this stage, um, I am moving um, some Bitcoin off of an exchange and uh, I purchase all my Bitcoin on KYC um, exchanges and there are limits to every KYC exchange for um, onboarding or purchasing Bitcoin uh, based on, um, you know, your price, your, your, your limits of what you can purchase based on maybe what you can deposit. And then there's almost always uh, some limitation on how you can move that uh, uh, BTC into your own uh, custody, and uh, you know that happens with Swan and happens with 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 Strike with with all of the KYC exchanges that I use. So this morning, um, as usual, I'm moving some Bitcoin to cold storage, and, and I just want to make two comments. One, um, you know, even though I've done thousands and thousands of transactions, um, not just with the uh, on-chain, but uh, with with uh, Lightning. So I've become quite familiar with how Bitcoin uh, moves around the world, um, how I can self-custody, how I it's permissionless and, um, you know, it's it's quick. Uh, I've helped uh, individuals, uh, friends in Venezuela, friends in Colombia. Um, I've moved value around uh, the world uh, in 10 minutes. This morning, um, you know, I moved some some Bitcoin off of Strike, and within ten minutes, the the uh, transaction had its had broadcasted, and to this day, even though I've done thousands of these things, my I did a double fist pump up in the air when when I saw the address disappear uh, off of uh, uh, off of Sparrow, right? Because I kind of watched that. I just got so excited. And then I was looking at the mempool and I saw, wow, it's only 1.8 V-bytes uh, or 1.8 sats per V-byte to, to move stuff. And I thought, well, you know, Ann had said, well, we were arguing early. Well, that argument, I think, is over um, because the, the, uh, the mempool is not clogged. Transactions are going through um, and, they're, and they're cheap. And then I started to think, you know, I'm a boomer. I have this this fiat virus. I, I can't get rid of it. I can't fucking get rid of this v fiat virus. It just it keeps popping up. I keep trying to do things like when I was talking about, well, is Bitcoin decoupling? I keep trying to take the fiat system that I know, this virus that has infected me, and applying it to Bitcoin. And it just doesn't work. I can't do it. I've got to come up with new metrics. And so seeing that it's 1.8 V-byte sats per V-byte to move uh, to, to, as a cost for transactions in the mempool, I'm thought to myself, maybe that's one of the signals I need to look at. Maybe that's one of the new economic markers that I need to start thinking about instead of trying to correlate this thing with TradFi and use my, my fiat virus infected brain to try to understand this thing. So I just, I, I had a little epiphany this morning and I'm just excited about it. They grow up so fast. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that, Peter. A little, a little glimpse into Peter's morning. Always, always like to have that and appreciate those thoughts. Uh, Nate, what do you got, man? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, first, quick, uh, I'm going to pile on to uh, Sam's um, 
article and also pointing out the, the hypocrisy in the Bloomberg article about uh, Karstens because he's, he says initially that a technology doesn't make for trusted money and then right uh, not four paragraphs later, he's speaking in Singapore saying that uh, CBDCs, which is a technology, uh, are going to aid in the efficiency of the fiat system. So you're, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to bring up, and I don't know if anybody has, but I saw a, an article in the Epic Times from Naveen uh, Anthrapoli. I'm totally butchering his name, but I wanted to give him props for this anyway. Uh, evidently, um, House Majority Whip Tom Emmer uh, introduced legislation that seeks to prevent the uh, Fed from issuing a CBDC. Uh, I would uh, urge you to uh, go to that article and take a look. What that means in a nutshell for me is that People even on the floors of Congress are taking sides on this issue of whether or not there should be a CBDC. And in the background, whether or not Bitcoin is going to be the uh, savior is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyway, uh, of a monetary system going forward, knowing that we already know there is this battle as far as what what a, a good sound monetary system is i just i just uh thought i'd bring that up and and highlight that article that's great yeah i have, I have a few thoughts there um i did see that headline as well thank you for bringing that up and it it makes me uh think of a couple things one i would love to get sam <clears throat> excuse me your thoughts on i know you've said in the past that you think there are going to be some significant hurdles to a cbdc actually being adopted so i would love to get uh, just your refresh summary view there. Um, but since we're talking about CBDCs, I wanted to share this with the group because I think it's interesting just to remember where the average person stands on these topics in terms of what they hear about it, what they know about it. So I'll just give this really quick anecdote. But I was uh, getting dinner with a few friends, uh, three friends from college earlier this week, and they all have different jobs within financial services not necessarily tradi traditional Wall Street stuff, but broader financial services within New York. And somehow uh, the topic, uh, Bitcoin came up and then I brought up CBDC and they looked at me and they had no idea what a CBDC was, what that acronym was. So the only reason I mentioned that is because this is still pretty foreign to the average person. Um, it, it's just interesting to know, you know, we talk about CBDCs all the time in the Bitcoin world, but this is not front and center for people who do not follow the same type of content. And then for myself, it was also eye-opening just because I went from working at Goldman Sachs about a year ago and I would hear, you know, the, the term ESG 47 times a week um, in, in a glowing way. It was always positive about ESG. I went from that to hearing CBDC 47 times a week. So that's been a big transition for me. Um, but anyway, I wanted to share that anecdote. Um, so Sam, could you, would you mind giving us your refresh thoughts on kind of feasibility of a CBDC actually getting implemented? Yeah, I mean, um, specifically, I think we're talking about the United States right now. And right now, I think it would be pretty a low probability. I mean, I have to commend the Fed, some Fed officials, including Jerome Powell, uh, Waller, Kashkari. I mean, I don't agree with them a lot, but they have uh, stood up against the idea of a U.S.-based uh, CBDC because they realize that it doesn't make any sense. There's different private solutions out there, including uh, – and there's a public one, the Fed Now program. Um, 
which will improve interbank payments and cause real time uh, payments between banks. And so it would have, it would kind of accomplish the goals of a CBDC without kind of disrupting the whole banking system in the process. And there's, there's a ton of risk associated with uh, surveillance and privacy issues, as well as disintermediating the banks, uh, worsening bank runs, worsening financial stability, and um, actually causing more inefficient payments. And so that those facts are kind of coming to light and um, the fed released their white paper a year ago and the public comments um, were about 73% negative against CBDCs in response to those, that white paper. So there was like a period where anybody could write in and uh, share their opinion and and companies share their opinions and banks share their opinions and 73% of them were negative. And so a lot of the CBDC development in America has been driven by the government and the treasury, not the federal reserve. And it, the Biden executive order, it was like one of the number one agendas is to rapidly increase development and research into a CBDC. And so you have to ask yourself, why does the government want to do this so much and the fed does not. Um, and I think it's because of surveillance. I think they want to just know every single financial transaction that's happening in the economy. And then the other thing is, uh, to stay competitive, quote unquote, because they're scared. They see China doing it. They see all these other countries doing it. Um, but it's really flawed because they're saying, oh, it's going to threaten the dollar. It's going to threaten the dollar's global dominance because all these other countries are doing CBDCs. But that fails to understand why the dollar is, is dominant globally. You know, I think the dollar is dominant because we have stability of law here. We enforce property rights. Um, we have the strongest, you know, the world's largest GDP, uh, you know, economy. Uh, we have the U S markets are the deepest and most liquid globally. Uh, those are the things that, you know, cause the dollar to be dominant and, and other countries doing a CBDCs won't change that us doing a CBDC might change that because it will erode property rights and, you know, cause censorship and (laughs) actually hurt our standing. I think, in terms of the dollar. And so it's out of fear, basically, that the government is pushing the CBDC. And that's wrong. You know, we shouldn't be reacting out of fear. And in fact, we should be applauding the fact that China is wasting their time and resources with permission blockchains, which is just an oxymoron. It's dumb technology that's slow and inefficient and all these negatives that come with it. We should be thankful that they're wasting their time and resources uh, trying to implement a permission blockchain uh, CBDC system. You know, we should we shouldn't get CBDC envy, is what Zoltan uh, said in his piece, and I, I completely agree with him. So I think the odds of a U.S. retail CBDC are really low right now, and I think as more facts come out and more people understand the negative, um, you know, risks associated with the CBDCs, that that will go down. But that's my hope. You know, I don't know how it's going to play out. I just hope our policymakers are smart enough to not go down that path. Yeah, thanks for that, Sam. That that's fantastic. I often wonder what the pitch is on the Chinese CBDC. It's like, hey, China can violate your property rights and take this away from you with a push of a button. They don't even need to use an intermediary. <clears throat> really, really strong pitch there. I, you know, I don't understand. I think you make some great points there, Sam. But I'll, you know, let that speak for itself. Um, we got uh, at least Pubby's hand is up. Um, Pubby, good morning, man. What's up? And then we'll go to Paul after that. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, always love, always love the Macro Fridays here, man. Always love it. Thanks. Uh, yeah, you know, um, you know, the asset is also interesting. Um, for years, I don't know how many remember this. That that was always a push to have cash in society, 
and I don't think they always said, well, you, you need cash in these societies because um, it's discriminatory to force people. That, there's people that just don't have bank accounts. They don't have IDs. They can't write checks. So you always need cash. And now the same people talking out both sides of their mouth saying, well, everyone's going to need a digital ID to get online. Or you're going to have this. And, and it's, it's beautiful marketing by them. All it is, it, all, all people here, the ones that do here, like John, you had a great point. There are many that never heard the term CBDC or that it stands for centralized bank digital currency. And that's the farthest they'll take it. Oh, digital currency. I get it. Yeah, well, I, I use my, my Visa card and my debit card. No big deal. And that's all. And that's where they stop. All right. They're not they're not looking down the road as to what are the logical next steps of a CBDC. And this is how they're going to trick people. It's good. You can't say CBDC without UBI. This is how you roll it out. Um, listen, you, you sign up for this digital ID. We're going to give you $100 a month. People are going to be flocking to that. But they're, what they're not looking at is the control, the surveillance state that just needs to come out of it. All right? And climate change is the next one. Guess what? Uh, now we can tie your carbon footprint into your CBDCs. All right? You go to the sword, and every time you're, you're checking out and scan, when you're scanning your steak, that costs you so much carbon versus vegetables. Now you get, you can control people's diet, all right, what they're eating, all right? Then you get the social credit when all the cameras are out there, and you get busted for jaywalking, or you get a speeding ticket, or you drive somewhere you're not supposed to. You leave your 15-minute city. That's just a logical next step. So I think you guys are making great points, and, and CBDCs definitely are not uh, discussed um, in, in my mind, enough. I know my group of friends, let alone mainstream media. So, th thanks for bringing that one up, man. Puppy, just trust the experts, man. What's the big deal? <laughs> uh, let's go to uh, no. Thanks for that, Puppy. Paul, did you have something you wanted to I, chime in with? We'd love to hear from you. I do. Thanks, John. Sam, I, I just I'm so glad you brought up uh, the idea that it's really the Treasury and the government that's. In here in the United States, um, we the, the Fed is unlocked to CC, but that the Treasury could. And I think it's it's been well illustrated that the Federal Reserve's policy on tightening is counter to the Treasury's policy to inject liquidity. And as Luke Roman and Danielle DiMartino Booth have suggested, there, there seems to be a conflict between the two. And if we look a little bit forward to the debt ceiling battles that are about to emerge, uh, if inflation is still hot and the Fed keeps tightening, you could see this uh, conflict uh, get heated. And, and I think that's why the government and the Treasury are more interested in the CBDC as a way to inject liquidity, uh, it would be completely counter to what the Federal Reserve in the United States is trying to do. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that and see if that uh, is on the horizon in your mind or uh, if you had any other thoughts. Well, um, that is a pro argument that I've read, which is it would be more efficient to inject liquidity, um, easier to distribute stimulus checks and um, entitlements, as well as increase the velocity of money. Like I've read, I've read that as a pro CBDC argument. 
Um, I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, I think they, you know, the stimulus checks were injected like pretty efficiently during the pandemic relatively. And I don't know if the CBDCs would be that much of a step forward, like step up function from that. Um, but that is a pro argument. Like you're 100% right. That that's what they say. Uh, it would be more efficient to inject liquidity into the system. Um, I'm just not necessarily, not necessarily sure if I agree with it, but I would have to think about it a little bit more. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily suggesting by any means that yeah, CBDCs yeah. in any fashion are, are are positive. But I was thinking it no, yeah, yeah. more in terms of the the conflict between the Fed and the Treasury, and oh, yeah. the Treasury's desire to reduce the value of the dollar to increase the value of securities to increase tax revenue, and so. I think they might be looking at a CBDC from the Treasury just as a survival mode to finance the operations of the government. Gotcha. No, I do think because um, in the pandemic, 2020, uh, the central banks and the Treasury, Fed and the Treasury, were kind of in alignment, right? And then um, once the Fed started uh, hiking rates, they kind of came in conflict with each other. So I think that's what Daniel DiMartino Booth was alluding to. And I, I agree with that. I agree with that sentiment. Brandon, you want to chime in here? Yeah, no, I mean, this is a great conversation again. I mean, and, and to Paul's point, uh, and, and really everybody's, um, you know, you look down the road, and I think that's what a lot of Bitcoiners do, right? We're always looking down the road, low time preference, very far down the road, whether it's five, 10 years, you know, really minimum, probably time horizons. And you, you look at, you know, the WEF, um, you own nothing and be happy. You, you look at the war going on right now, basically, you know, we're really World War Three when you encapsulate just the physical hot war going on, plus the, the cultural war and the, the PSYOP wars going on. And and you see like things like, like I moved in 2009, I think John, you and I are the same age, you know, and, and being a senior at Michigan State that year, I remember moving my, my aunt and uncle um, in East Lansing. They live just, you know, right, right outside Michigan State. Is anyone hearing Brandon? Yep. Can you hear me now? Call. Can you uh, I, th I think we got you back. Cool. Um, so I remember moving my my parent or my my aunt and uncle out of their out of their house and uh, and just not really realizing what was going on and and that got me into everything and down this path and seeing this play out I, I just I'm having a hard time I see how CBDCs play into this in in a, in a certain sense and what everyone's saying here too because. You're going to have, I mean, if you imagine like three, five years from now, the central banks are trying to squeeze everyone. They, there's this collectivist mentality, obviously, this global mentality. They're trying to squeeze the middle class. They want you to own nothing and be happy. It's the CBDCs. They're going to track everything, social credit scores, et cetera. I mean, can you imagine five years from now when, you know, we think it's bad now is with the, the debt, uh, student loan debt and people, we can't even get people to pay their student loan, right? Can you imagine when there's 2 million, 5 million, 10 million people getting booted from their homes and you've got, you know, people on social media, Facebook lives, Instagram lives. Oh, look, they're kicking the they're kicking the Jones family out of the house. You know, this look at this mortgage company doing this. Look at them. Even can you imagine what will be happening then? So what happens then? It's it's the CBDCs being used to say, hey, you know, we'll we'll pay for your house. You know, will the government or whoever financing that kind of to like taking what everyone's kind of saying here in a nutshell, we'll take it, injecting liquidity in the system and taking ownership over those assets and saying, hey, you know what? And your house is worth two hundred grand. We'll pay you two fifty actually. And we'll actually put that 50 grand extra into your account through the CBDCs 
And then, you, you know, here, it's on us. Now we own it, right? Now who owns it, right? It's BlackRock. It's you know, who owns BlackRock, right? So you go, you go, kind of go up this daisy chain of where these things are headed and what's going on. And I think, again, that's that's where all this leads. And, and Puppy just kind of set me off. And that was what, you know, Puppy, <laughs> I appreciate you just always railing on the CBDCs. And, and Sam, it really is probably one of the most uh, egregious things of our time. And and this is why we're all here at the end of the day, this fight for, for our posterity, quite honestly. So I... Uh, appreciate you guys in the the war you guys perpetuate all constantly against these the cbdc's and what's happening because it really is i think one of the biggest if not the biggest uh threat we have to freedom and humanity going forward amen to that cbdc the tyrant's dream <laughs> sam what you want to chime in there yeah i don't mean to like dominate the conversation i just want to add like so one of the risks so everyone's wondering, like all the pro CBDC advocates are wondering, like, so there's implementation risks. Like, how do we get people to actually use this? And you brought up the idea of attaching UBI or stimulus or some kind of incentives, which Nigeria has tried to do that. The Bahamas tried to do that with their CBDCs. It didn't really go over well. But one of the risks um, is that it will actually blow up the Fed's balance sheet even more because it'll cost money, right? <laughs> like, give all these stimulus checks or... Um, they even wanted to incentivize the banks that they risked disintermediating to offer CBDCs by basically like paying them. Um, and so they, they've talked about, there's multiple really smart people who've talked about the risk of this actually blowing up the Fed's balance sheet even more when they implement the CBDC, um, which at a time when they're trying to uh, do QT and reduce the balance sheet, they're thinking about, you know, hey, let's let's start a CBDC, which actually might just expand the balance sheet even more, uh, hurting their credibility. So it's just another interesting dynamic that I, that I think about with these things. Tone Bays, good morning, man. Good to have you up here. Uh, would love to hear from you. What are you thinking? Yeah, hey guys. Yeah, I was just listening and we've had all of these discussions uh, for probably going on six years now. Uh, nothing has really changed. Everything that uh, Jimmy Song and I were saying back then still is here. Uh, there's just two things that you guys haven't mentioned, right? So everyone focused on um, government's control of your currency, the privacy side of it. Uh, there's two additional parts. So um, I I've always talked about the push for CBDCs as twofold. One of them has been thoroughly discussed. Uh, government's full control of how you spend your money, and full surveillance, full tax compliance, everything. That's one main aspect of eliminating cash, also pushing uh, their monetary policy, right? They want you to spend money, they're gonna put in a negative 10% uh, interest rate on your savings. They want you to save money, which they almost never do, then they put in a positive uh, savings rate. But that's control of your money. The other part that no one's mentioned is uh, when, uh, I guess the founding fathers of the US made the financial system. They wanted to limit the government's ability to create money as much as possible. And the best thinking at the time from their perspective was, well, if we don't let the politicians print the money, we have to force them to borrow it into existence. And only the private banks have the ability to create money. That would limit politicians' ability to print money. And that somewhat worked for about 100 years, uh, but now that's all collapsing. So the, a whole second reason for why it's the politicians pushing CBDC is that it would remove 
private bank's ability to create money. They want to, they don't like the private banks. They don't like like JP Morgan's. And I know the banks are the big lobbyists, but the politicians don't like them. They've always been at war with the banks. So they want to remove the ability of the private banking sector to create money. Remember, every time you swipe your credit card, it's the private banking system that creates that money. They create that money out of thin air. They pay the business. And then when you pay your credit card off, uh, that cancels the debt that the private sector created, not the public sector, not the government. And the third um, element of the whole CBDC thing, which also has not yet been discussed, and maybe some people would like to comment, is the U.S. government already has a central bank digital currency. It's called the U.S. dollar. 98% of it is already digital. So the big question is, are they actually creating a whole new currency in anticipation of removing the dollar? <clears throat> maybe that's going to be the IMF drawing right, or it's going to be a basket, or maybe it'll be partially backed by something. Who knows? Or is it simply the, the current U.S. dollar in only digital form, or are they pushing for a brand new currency? Maybe it will still be called a dollar or it will be called something else, but will it be a new currency or won't it just be the dollar? So these are the three uh, aspects to it. You guys have only been focused on one. Thanks, Tone. Appreciate that. These are loaded, loaded topics. It, you know, it gets into game theory of governments. It gets into the existing financial system. It gets into the history of the financial system. So there's a lot of different directions to go here. Um, it is 11 o'clock, so we are going to pivot shortly. We got to do some announcements, and then we want to get into more macro topics. But before we do that, uh, Joe Carlosari, good morning, man. Would you like to chime in here? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And I, I think Tone knocked it out of the park. I was going to make many of those comments. But one additional thing that I'll just raise for anybody that wants to wade in seriously on the CBDC discussion is that the Fed has filed papers with courts. They've taken position legally and they filed summary papers and uh, various policy papers internally and externally where they say they lack the legislative authority to institute a CBDC. So anyone who comes into spaces and claims that the Fed is imminent in terms of instituting a CBDC, they have stated publicly and in legal filings that they don't have the authority to do that. Now, why is that significant? Well, because if they were to ever reverse that position and arbitrarily issue a CBDC, there's doctrines under the law called estoppel, meaning that their own words can and will be used against them in courts of law to say, Fed, you do not have the ability to institute a CBDC without congressional authorization. That's straight from uh, Jerome Powell. That's straight from various members of the working group that are studying the issue of the CBDC at the Fed. They want legislative authority. They want Congress to pass it. Okay, And they can't just willy-nilly change that position. So ultimately, the people that will decide whether there is a CBDC, if it ever comes down the pipeline, are going to be legislators, right? And this is significant for several reasons. Number one, uh, as you know, uh, the uh, the typical um, mode of Washington these days is gridlock. Nothing gets passed. Uh, it's just, you know, almost impossible to get anything through the Congress, particularly the Senate. Number two, guess who has some of the most powerful ability to influence legislation on the Hill? The banks. The banks have incredible ability to impact legislation. So if you think that the CBDC is going to just magically take hold in the United States without the banks being cut right into the mix of it, 
um, is, uh, is I think that's naive. The banks will absolutely lobby and control any quote unquote CBDC. And to the to Tone's point again, there we have a CBDC. It's already instituted because the majority of dollars are digital. So we spend so much time talking about a US CBDC, but again, it's one of these remote possibilities, at least in the United States, that I think is, uh, you know, almost uh, a waste of time to talk about because it's, it's not coming anytime soon. Appreciate the thoughts, Joe. Thanks for the additional color. Uh, Nate, let's go to you real quick, and then we're going to pivot to announcements and other topics. Actually, I just have a follow-up question for Joe. Uh, when you say the banks are involved in the legislation process for CBDCs, doesn't that kind of... No, for everything. They're a uh, lobbying group. Yeah, th that's true. When it comes to CBDCs, though, specifically, doesn't doesn't a CBDC actually pose an existential threat to the banking system as we know it? Absolutely not. What if they do it similar to how China's done it with their commercial banks, where every bank has a note and they control it? I mean, Zelle is a CBDC. What's the difference between Zelle and a CBDC? I know the difference between Zelle and a CBDC, and I disagree with the idea that all U.S. dollars are digital right now because they're all private money. They're all issued by commercial banks or like non-bank uh, non financial companies like a PayPal or a Zelle. They're not issue. They're not liabilities of the central bank itself. So there's a degree of liquidity and default risk with all other digital dollars. So that's the big difference between a CBDC and existing digital dollars. And then they wouldn't be a transmission channel for monetary policy or fiscal why, policy. Why do you think that digital dollars uh, that are effectively ratified and issued and become liabilities that that cuts out the commercial banking system doesn't? Well, it would because the idea is that uh, because a CBDC technically wouldn't have default and liquidity risk like the digital sure dollars that are. Why, why not? Well, because this is technically because the central bank has access to a quote unquote money printer or could print more money. They, and they don't default. have the ability. That's not true, though. People repeat that. Uh, Joe, I mean, we're getting into technicals here. Like no, the Treasury no, could do, but it doesn't. It, it's it, okay. A, a, the Federal Reserve cannot increase the quantity of government obligations. The amount of no, government I understand that. Yeah, yeah, I know you do. I'm just saying for the listeners to make it real simple because these are really not that complicated. Money is created into existence through the commercial banking system, and through the uh, and through the Treasury. The Treasury can literally borrow, right? Which again is another type of borrowing, but they can issue stimmy checks, and that is quote unquote money printing, right? But aside from that. All the Fed can do is buy existing obligations of the United States government. That's it. They can they can change the nature of a reserve. They can change it from a treasury bill to a bank reserve, which is a type of interbank money. But they they can't actually quote unquote print new money, print new obligations. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Completely yeah. understand that. But yeah, but, go ahead. But if, well, I mean, like, so if if you're a PayPal and you have all your money on PayPal, you're looking at those numbers on a screen. Those are like a private company that issued it or something like that. So a commercial bank issued it. So if they went under your, your money, like this would happen during the global financial crisis, it would be trapped in bankruptcy courts and stuff like that. If technically, if you had a CBDC, it's more likely that the treasury and the federal reserve would come in and, you know, prevent that from happening. It wouldn't exist. Those risks wouldn't exist of like going bankrupt because technically How would they the prevent? treasury. How? It's like what you said, the treasury can just, you know, White to rule, like issue more money. The Fed will monetize the debt, and not not without violating the Federal Reserve. What you're talking about is changing the Federal Reserve Act. You're you're changing them, you know, as Lacey Hunt would say, from being the the, the lender of last resort to the spender. You're you to make what you're talking about work. You'd have to literally amend the entire Federal Reserve Act. 
Well, I don't, dude, I don't think this well, is going to happen. I agreed with, I agreed with you, Joe. Like if, if you listen to me before, I think it's a highly low probability. And I agree that they don't have the legal issue. I'm talking about why they think it would disintermediate the banks. If they ha it happened, that's why it would happen. Oh, yeah. But I, like, I, I don't think it will happen. I want to make myself clear. Correct. And, and, and you, you would basically, what you're basically saying is like, let's change the entire banking system of the United States, not just issue a CBC. Like you, you'd have to exactly. rewrite the, the entire separation of powers between Fed and Treasury. Right. You have to read So like, the, the, I, I don't know. That just seems. That's, that's, that's why I don't think it's going to happen. That's, I mean, we're, we're totally in agreement, man. I'm just, I'm saying why they think if it happened, why they think it would disintermediate the banks and why a digital dollars, it would be different than a retail CBDC technically. Yeah. And it would be an entirely different system, different financial and monetary system, but I'll just leave it with this. Cause I know you guys want to jump here, but yeah. ultimately, you know, what, what you're talking about here is much bigger than the CBDC. It's actually rewriting the entire banking system. And the important takeaway, if you can emphasize one thing is that this cannot be just the quote unquote fed. This is literally the leaders in Washington. They're going to, if, they, if you're going to rewrite the entire federal reserve act, that's got to go through Congress. So, you know, that's politicians, not, not bankers. Yeah. Good, good stuff, guys. Appreciate it. We are going to move. I, I will just kind of summarize. I think why these conversations can get tricky is sometimes we're talking about how things work in the existing system. And then other times people start to speculate about how things could change. So those, we have to keep in mind those, those two different types of conversations we might be having. But thank you, everyone, for, for those comments there. So we are going to hit some announcements. Then we're going to pivot into uh, Swan Private Macro. So we'll talk a little bit more about the goings-on in macro and economic developments. Um, so good morning, everyone. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. It's the place for morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. We do this every day, Monday to Friday, every weekday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern as a live Twitter spaces. As you know, uh, Cafe Bitcoin is hosted by Swan Bitcoin. Um, you are all listening to the live Twitter spaces right now. If you want to catch the recording, we post it as a podcast. And you can find that in the usual places, Fountain, Spotify, Apple, etc. Alex Stanzig is your usual host. I am guest hosting for Alex today. My name is John Horn. I'm part of the private client services team here at Swan. We also refer to that as Swan Private. And I joined Swan almost a year ago now after a 13-year career in TradFi at Goldman Sachs, uh, where I like to say that I worked on things that are not nearly as interesting or consequential compared to Bitcoin. We will hit a few announcements here. So Swan IRA is a big one that we want to cover. If you believe Bitcoin is generational wealth, and we of course believe that here at Swan, then why not own Bitcoin in a tax-advantaged way? And I'm talking about Swan IRA. So you can own real Bitcoin with no taxes or deferred taxes, um, depending on whether you set up a Roth or a traditional IRA. If you're already a Swan client, you can get one of these Swan IRAs set up for yourself in a minute. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. It literally takes a minute or less to get the account set up. If you're not already a Swan client, it's still quite easy to get uh, a Swan account set up, including a Swan IRA. And we can also do transfers, rollovers from existing retirement accounts. We can provide guidance on that. A uh, lot of different retirement accounts out there. So if you have questions about how to get funds from an existing retirement account into a Swan IRA, please, please reach out to us. We can help um, DM me, DM Stephen Lupka, DM Terrence Yang. 
um, and we'll get your questions answered. Um, okay, that's probably enough on Swan IRA, but it is live, easy to set it up and reach out to us with questions. Uh, Pubby, you, if you're still on and available, would love for you to give a little shout out to the pleb party with the toxic happy hour crew that's coming up in Miami. The conference is just a few months away, rapidly approaching. Um, Pubby, would love to hear from you. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate the uh, the shout out there. Uh, yeah, so um, as you know, two to four, we uh, we run our afternoon noon show there, and still saw the plus man hanging out. You know, that's that's most of the fun of Bitcoin, especially in the, in the bear markets, is hanging out with other Bitcoiners. And I, this past year at Pacific Bitcoin, when Swan was out there, um, we were talking. Uh, Anders, you know, lives in LA, and we were just saying, hey, you know, we get, get a lot of listeners out in the area. Let's let's just do a meetup. And so he started up just his local meetup page. And what we thought would be 20 or 30 people soon grew to 100, 200. And we had to cap, we capped it at 420 for all you 420 uh, friendly people. And we just thought it was a, a, a fun idea. And everyone just had a blast. So, yeah, we're going to do it, do it there in Miami. Uh, we wanted to try to keep it in, in uh, South Beach, which, as you know, man, finding facilities and, and getting the costs um, down can, can be a lot of work. So, yeah, we, we were talking to Corey. One day, and and he he said, look, we, you know, let's Swan. We'll have Swan be the main sponsor. So thanks to uh, Corey and the Swan guys. Yeah, man, we got this great rooftop location. Uh, we already have. I I, I think we're it's already half. We're, we're putting it at six fifteen in honor of American Hoddle, but I think we already have three hundred people um, <laughs> with tickets broken for. So yeah, it, it's it's amazing. You know, three months out still, but uh, yeah, you want to come down. Um, Look, heck, you get not only the plebs, but, you know, you get all our favorite macro guys. You know, Jeff Booth's going to be there. Uh, you know, Fossey, Lawrence Lepard, Gary Leland. Uh, so, yeah, come out, um, shake some hands, ask questions, have a good time, a few drinks, and and kick off uh, and kick off your uh, Bitcoin conference experience. That is uh, May 18th, so it's the, day, the night before the, the first day of the conference. Awesome. Thanks, Pubby. Yeah, definitely recommend people check that out. Um, if they're going to the conference, hanging out with Bitcoiners in real life is a great experience, especially people like Pubby and Anders and everyone else that's going to be there. I'm going to do one more quick uh, announcement for Swan Cannon. This is not something we always talk about, but I want to give it a shout out. And it's, it's basically a resource that Swan has put together that I think is just really high quality. So, you know, we all say Bitcoin is a rabbit hole and you quickly find out that there are multiple rabbit holes of their own within the broader Bitcoin rabbit hole. If you go to swanbitcoin.com slash canon, you will see a wealth of information from some really great thinkers, great writers uh, about key topics that are related to Bitcoin. So it could be energy consumption, mining, uh, Bitcoin security, self-custody, privacy, ton of other topics. Um, there's also one that is called Bitcoin 101. So you could use that to share with people who are new to Bitcoin. Maybe they're asking you some questions where they can learn more. Um, that's a good one to send them. So check out Swan Cannon for yourself and for others. Uh, you will not get bogged down by noise. There, there's a major signal there. So a quick shout out to Swan Cannon. All right, cool. Thanks to everyone for listening to the announcement. So we are at 11.15 here. That's a good time to pivot into what we do most Fridays, which is Swan Private Macro Friday. Um, we like to talk about anything from topical things that have happened. It could be a, a recent data release just in the past few days. It could be 
price action of traditional assets, price, price action of Bitcoin, or sometimes we get into more economic, philosophical kind of foundational questions as well. So anything in between there is fair game. Um, I will uh, kick it off by noting a few things, but then would love to hear from Sam. Um, we're hearing a lot from Sam today, which I think is awesome because I think he's a very thoughtful guy who brings really good content. Um, there's been some changes to the market recently. Obviously, inflation is still um, a really big sticking point that people are focused on. But if you look at the expectations for the Fed's fu Fed funds rate, the, the rate that the Fed sets when every time they have a rate hike decision and we all gather around and watch what they have to say, they're referring to the Fed funds rate. And if you look at uh, the expectations, um, it's really increased pretty significantly, kind of peaking out at uh, you know 4.9% to now 5.4%. So that has been a big mover in the markets lately. Um, if I look at what markets are doing today, um, you could see equity markets are down pretty significantly. Treasury yields are up pretty significantly for, for one day. The, the two years moved over 12 basis points higher. So that's kind of the idea is that inflation is going to be stickier. The Fed is going to hike for longer. Equity markets tend to not like that. Um, that's what the market is feeling like right now. But Sam has, as usual, done some good writing about this. So Sam would love to kick it over to you to elaborate as you see fit. Uh, dollar is up big today as well. Just keep in mind. Thanks, Ooh, Sam. Definitely, definitely want to hear from you uh, as well, Tone, after Sam. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if I have that much um, to add. You know, basically inflation is still sticky. And so the market basically expects the Fed will have to hike longer and higher. Uh, the terminal rate's now higher and, and the expectation that the Fed will cut got pushed back like three or four months when you look at the Fed funds futures curve. And specifically services. I mean, that is the main thing Jerome Powell harped about was core CPI services, X shelter, you know, they want to see some of these wages start to come down, but they're still rising nominally. They're not beating inflation in real terms. They're still down 22 consecutive months. Uh, so that purchasing power will always be lost. It'll permanent loss of purchasing power from this inflation. And that's the uh, pernicious hidden tax that is inflation on all workers. Um, but the, the fact is, is that inflation still remains um, sticky, and they expect the Fed to have to hike rates, which could be, um, you know, a further headwind to risk assets. But you know, some of these structural issues, some of the like these, like you have cyclical inflation, which are driven by short-term credit cycles, um, changes in consumer behavior, pent-up demand, stimulus checks, temporary supply chain disruptions, those kind of things. Um, that's cyclical inflation and that kind of fluctuates, but then you have more structural drivers of inflation, like deglobalization, demographics, um, slowing productivity due to underinvestment, falling education standards and things like that. Um, you know, those things haven't changed. And so you have this, like, if you look at the seventies, there's multiple periods of disinflation, years of disinflation within a more broader structurally inflationary decade. And, um, you know, it's my thesis and it's many others like Lynn Alden's and others that um, we're entering this more structurally inflationary period because of these larger trends of uh, supply constraints in critical industries like energy, as well as uh, deglobalization and demographics, which are causing kind of like a labor shortage and things like that. So it's always you got to look at the forest, um, you know, don't miss the forest from the trees and 
and focus long term because we could be in this period of like short term disinflation in a broader long term structurally inflationary period. So that's all I'll say now. I'd love to hear other people's opinions. Yeah, I love the high level view. Thank you for that, Sam. Um, Tone would love to hear from you. We've also got uh, Terrence. Haven't heard from you this morning. If you have any uh, macro uh, thoughts, we'd love to hear from you, Terrence. But uh, Tone, what do you got? Sure. Uh, let's go. We'll, we'll go from the short term, and then we'll work our way up into the what the Fed may do, even though it's a month away. We're a lot closer to the last time they raise rates than the next time uh, they're going to raise rates. Uh, now. Uh, the dollar is up, but it's been down quite a bit since uh, October when it popped. Still has a long way to go. From a TA perspective, the dollar is stuck right at resistance, and the S&P 500 fell today pretty substantially, and that one is sitting right at support. Now, I have been bullish on the U.S. stock market since October, since it reversed in October. Uh, even I've been bullish since September, basically, that anticipating a reversal in the fall. And... I'm still reluctantly bullish on the U.S. stock market, and I'm bullish on the U.S. dollar, uh, which is kind of weird, but I do expect both of those uh, to kind of rise. And if the stock market reverses and does rise, as I expect, uh, Bitcoin will follow suit. Bitcoin is still fully correlated uh, to the U.S. stock market, in my view. I know it looks like it has decoupled from it, but it also decoupled from it in November on the FTX announcement. Uh, FTF, the FTF's blow up. So you know, we decoupled then because uh, Bitcoin crashed in light of FTX. And after being down there for a few months, uh, not really creating as much contagion as people anticipated. And now we uh, kind of made up for all those losses of the FTX. Uh, so it gave this impression that Bitcoin has decoupled from the stock market, but it really didn't. If you back out the FTX drop and now the recent rise. So uh, I still think the markets are pretty correlated. Now, I've watched the, uh, I guess, the probability of what the Fed will do since the day of the last uh, Fed rate rise. And we went from 98% expectation of the Fed only raising 25 basis points to now a 70-30 uh, with a 30% chance that the Fed will raise it 50 basis points. Uh, inflation is still fairly high, uh, and if you actually look at inflation of the things that matter, uh, things like food, things like energy, uh, things that you actually buy on a weekly basis, not things that you buy on an annual basis or every few years, uh, or minor stuff that doesn't really matter. Uh, but that stuff, the inflation on that stuff is actually super high. It's way above what the 6 or 7% that it came in at. Um, I personally can't see the Fed raising the interest rate 50 basis points because what people have to realize, and I know I keep mentioning it, uh, if you just look at the most basic forms of how government receives money and how government spends money, if we just, uh, again, go to the absolute most basic, right? Uh, the government makes money from uh, individual taxes, uh, a little bit of corporate taxes, and then, you know, the insurance stuff, you know, like the social security taxes, uh, the payroll tax, uh, the, that's the ones that uh, the, the companies can't avoid. Uh, corporate taxes are tiny because governments have really good accountants, sorry, corporations have really good accountants, and individuals uh, 
taxes, the ones that work for a living can't really get out of those very easily. If you have an LLC, you can do better uh, on saving some money. Uh, how does government spend money? Social Security, uh, healthcare, whether that's Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security is the big one, uh, the payouts, population is getting older, defense spending, education spending, and a little bit of infrastructure, which seems to be crumbling completely. So, but there is one line item of the government spending, which is interest on debt. And that line item is now half a trillion dollars for 2022. This is the only item on both sides of the ledger that has the ability to rise exponentially as interest rates rise. And people have no idea how bad ex exponential functions get versus linear functions. This is still the smallest item versus the ones that I've named. But next year, it's probably going to be greater than education. And the year after that, it's probably going to be greater than defense spending. Uh, because this is the one that goes up exponentially. Because government never pays back the principle of the debt. And government goes into deficit now for over a trillion dollars a year. That has been consistent. So not only is old debt expiring, new debt of one trillion a year is coming in. And now they don't get to refinance old debt at very low interest rates, which have, they have been doing for the last 10, 20 years. Uh, and new debt at very low zero interest rates. Now what's happening, new debt is gonna be created at four to 5% interest rates because of the Fed's rise in interest rates. And old debt that gets remonetized will now go from an old interest rate of like 2% to now 4%. This line item, uh, if the Fed keeps interest rates at just 5% or higher for the next seven, eight years, this line item will be at the top of the list. So in 2022, the government spent half a trillion in just interest payments on their uh, debt, which is now over $31 trillion. Uh, in about five years, this will probably be over a trillion dollars, and then it could actually start to double every year if the Fed interest rate stays at that 5-6%. So this is the cap on Fed being able to raise interest rate further than say 6% because that number starts to go up exponentially uh, with every 1% rise in the interest rate. I'll leave it there. Yeah, Tone, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I actually did a tweet thread on this just a few days ago, looking at the CBO's own forecasts and these charts made the rounds uh, the middle, the second half of last year. The CBO, I believe they do it July of every year, and they call it the Long-Term Budget Outlook. So this is the U.S. Congressional Budget Office. And uh, I, I say that just because, you know, we're not trying to be hyperbolic Bitcoiners saying, you know, this is what's happening to the U.S. debt situation, and, you know, we're exaggerating numbers to, to make it look worse than it is. Let's just take what the CBO says that things are going to do uh, in terms of debt, in terms of interest expense, in terms of the annual deficit, and in terms of GDP. Where, you know, where are we going from a debt to GDP perspective, which is uh, pretty critical because that's kind of thought as the main metric to measure a nation's debt burden. And just adding to some of the comments that that Tone made, they, they do a 30-year outlook. And if you look at the year 2052, they say that 
uh, debt to GDP will go from right now it's around 100%. And by the way, you'll see different numbers because it depends if you exclude some of the debt that's known as intergovernmental debt. So there's certain uh, treasuries that are held by the Social Security Administration, for example. They call that intergovernmental debt because it's literally one part of the government owes another part of the government. That's why you'll see sometimes the U.S. debt is quoted as $31 trillion. Sometimes it's quoted as 24 to $25 trillion. So if you take that lower number, 24 to $25 trillion, right now the U.S. has that, about that much debt and about that much annual GDP. So that means our annual debt to GDP is uh, annual GDP to our debt, excuse me, debt, debt to our annual GDP is about 100% right now. But where does the CBO think that that's headed 30 years from now? Okay, they say that nominal GDP is going to grow at about 3.8% per year on average for the next 30 years. But they see our debt outstanding growing at about 6% per year. So where does that put us? That puts us at 185% debt to our annual GDP. And let's just talk about the absolute numbers there. That means they're forecasting annual nominal GDP in the U.S. to be $75 trillion. And at 185%, that means the national debt of the U.S. would be about $138 trillion in the year 2052. And if you could, you know, just do the simple math yourself, no one knows what interest rates are going to be at that point in time. You know, they could be, they could be anywhere. But let's just slap a 3.5% average coupon on that amount of debt. That's a $4.8 trillion annual expense of just paying the interest on your debt for the U.S. government. If it goes to 5%, you're talking almost $7 trillion of annual interest on the debt. So again, Tone said it's a half a trillion now. It's $500 billion. I think in, in the CBO's fairly optimistic scenario, they're telling you that number is going to go uh, almost 10x in the next 30 years. So I think they're super optimistic. I think it's gonna. <laughs> I think it's gonna go 10x by 2030, not in 30 years, but by 2030 in six to seven years. Because I still think they're underestimating the exponential function, and I think for some reason they think that there will be a single year in the next six years where the U.S. will not run a deficit. Yeah, it, it, it's optimistic, uh, arguably. For several reasons, one of which uh, that people have pointed out, their numbers never really assume that there's some kind of major crisis. And you know, COVID was extremely unique. Yeah, I'm not. I don't think that's going to happen again. Exactly uh, the same thing. Something sometime soon. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, but there, there's likely to be some sort of crisis that doesn't just cause us to increase our debt by six percent per year. There's something that causes us to increase it by 20% in a particular year, 30% a particular year. And they don't make any assumptions for that, that happening. So, and then 3.9%, 3.8% nominal GDP growth is arguably optimistic as well. So, you know, takeaways from this for me anyway, I don't think it's necessarily the type of thing where we say, you know, the U.S. government won't exist uh, in 2052 or the U.S. dollar is not going to be used or... No one's going to hold treasuries. 
I actually think it's possible that in 2052, it, with these kind of numbers, that the U.S. dollar is still one of the dominant forms of currency in the world and that treasuries are a dominant reserve asset in the world. I think that's entirely possible. But, you know, what does that mean for the purchasing power of the dollar and the debasement, essentially, of the dollar that's either coming from the Fed becoming more involved in purchasing treasuries or just the fact that treasuries are constantly issued and that leads to increases in money supply. It, for me, the takeaway is all roads lead to currency debasement in one form or another. And again, you don't have to take my uh, forecasts on this. We're looking at the U.S. government's CBO's own forecasts. Uh, Pubby, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, yeah, you know, um, and I, I think Joe stepped down, uh, but he brought up earlier, um, I always love to hear him talk, but that's one of the things he was mentioning was, uh, yeah, well, they really, don't worry about CBDCs, they can't really implement that. I mean, literally, they would have to change the entire constitution. Um, the banks have a great lobbying thing, politicians won't vote for it. Uh, you know, I, I'm looking around, and I'm seeing where the U.S. is in talks right now uh, with the WHO, for example, to follow the entire WHO guidance on any type of pandemic. All right, already given up American autonomy and what used to be making uh, medical decisions to a central organization. The left can't be far behind. And I, I can easily see, we just saw, you know, the result after what happened in Canada, the deputy prime minister about, and they're, and they're saying, oh yeah, the Emergencies Act, it was, that was lawfully done. I mean, generally, a manufactured crisis in their mind to to uh, shut down individual uh, citizen bank accounts, and now there's legal justification for it. So I would say be careful. I don't know necessarily who controls all politicians, but I don't think it's too far-fetched for any, any manufactured crisis to, to circumvent this current financial system. To, to your point, Puppy, too, and, I, and it's unfortunate Joe stepped down. That's what I was going to step in with earlier. But just a little tangent off that was he was saying, you know, the Federal Reserve, you know, act and, you know, following that charter and everything. But haven't they already gone against that? You know, the special purpose facilities and things of that nature. They've done, they've already done things in the past where they're not following their initial charter. So, I mean, it'd be naive for any of us to sit here and think, well, you know, the government's just going to do what's aligned to the Constitution or the Federal Reserve is going to do it. They've shown that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. They're going to continue doing what's in their best interest, and, and that's it. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I would, I would just say, like, to, I, I kind of agree with Joe more because it would just, it would be a lot of hurdles to get that done. I mean, it, this would be a complete revamping of the entire banking industry, like Joe was saying, and it would take uh, legislation to change it. So um, I agree with, I, I partly agree with you, Brandon, like it's not like it's impossible, uh, but it, it, it's going to be really difficult to implement any kind of retail CBDC in the United States, in my opinion. And I hear that, but I do think the history of our government and most governments is just continuing to reach and they find a way to do things that might be blatantly disallowed by their charter, whatever documents kind of govern what they can do. So I, I'm glad to hear that, you know, this one seems particularly difficult. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't rule it out because I think there's just a long history of governments kind of pushing the limits. Uh, COVID is not all that isolated. Like the amount of money that the government basically created out of thin air to help with COVID 
by the time the Ukraine thing is all said and done, it's going to be about the same, right? Like uh, it's already almost a trillion dollars heading to Ukraine, and they're doubling down on that. So it's uh, it happens all the time. Like before Trump came in in 2015, you know, they were bailing out Europe as well. They were imploding. They created a negative interest rate. Though that helped the U.S. because the U.S. dropped interest rates a lot. And prior to that, it was, you know, 2008 and all the money that was printed there to bail out the banks. So these events are happening more and more and more that uh, are causing governments to print ridiculous money. And when you go to the national debt clock, this is what people don't see. When you go to that national debt clock and you see that it's going to be, it's almost at $32 trillion of federal debt, how much of that is cumulative interest over the last 30 plus years? And what you can realize is the government did not borrow $32 trillion in, in their debt hole. The government only borrowed maybe eight, nine trillion dollars over those years, and the majority of it recently. Everything else is cumulative interest. Imagine if you ran your personal life uh, every year you borrowed some money continuously, and you always had interest on that money. While that interest did fluctuate, it was kind of high in the 80s, but almost zero in the throughout the 2000s. So you were able to just borrow money, not realizing that, well, all of that has to be remonetized. Right now, over 75% of that $32 trillion in federal debt uh, is cumulative interest over the last 30 plus years. Uh, we're not even going to get into the uh, unfunded liabilities, which is a five times bigger hole. Yeah, and, and again, if you look at the their own forecasts, they don't even forecast that this is going to be paid down in real terms or, or even in, uh, you know, what would be called debt burden terms. Like, they're not even claiming that we're going to inflate away the debt. Inflating away the debt would mean you get your nominal GDP to go up because there's more money circulating in the system or, uh, you know, nominal GDP can go up because of, good economic growth as well, you know, real exchanges happening in the economy, real production, real exchange. So you can, you inflate away the debt by having your GDP grow faster than your debt. But if you take on a whole bunch of new debt every single year, it becomes very hard to even inflate away the debt. And that's what the CBO is telling us is that we're going to take on so much new debt every year that this debt's not being inflated away. It's not a 1940s type scenario where we had an acute situation and then we took down our spending. That That's maybe one thing I, I would say here. And then I want to hear from, uh, from yeah. Glenn or, or Sam. We'll oh, go to you just first. Real, real quick. Yeah, I mean, TXMC, who's a great uh, analyst in the audience, he's worth pointing out that the CBO estimates of interest expense are optimistically assuming Fed funds of 2.5% in perpetuity. So oh my God. So if it's five for, if it's five percent, that chart people don't realize if it's if it's not two and a half percent, if it's five percent, it doesn't that debt doesn't double. It probably goes up seven to eight fold. Like it, it's exponential yeah. rise with every little tick in yeah. the interest rate. Sam, is that exactly. the uh, USA debt clock site? That's what it's based off. Is that you're referring to? Uh, no, the CBO estimates oh, CBO, that we're talking okay. about. But uh, I actually also have to leave. So just thanks, guys, for listening. And everyone have a good weekend. Love you all. Cheers. See you, Sam. Yeah, thanks, Sam. That was great. Um, I just want to add in one more thing of just kind of how I see the current debt deficit uh, picture in the U.S. And then we'll go to uh, Len. want to hear from you. 
Um, I, I view it as like we all kind of know this 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 term uh, acute versus chronic. We usually think of it in terms of, of physical health, right, or stress. We and people say acute stress, like working out, is a good thing. Chronic stress, you know, continual stress on your body is a bad thing. What happened in the '40s? If you kind of look at some of these charts, it was like an acute debt problem, and we stopped adding debt, and we were actually able to grow our way out of it. When you look at the 30-year forecast for the U.S., we have a chronic debt problem now. We're, we're not going into austerity anytime soon. So I think the odds of the U.S. growing out of this one and actually uh, stopping to issue uh, debt at the pace we're doing, it's, it's very, very unlikely. And again, you can see that the U.S.'s own agencies are, are not forecasting it to happen. Uh, Len, good morning. What, what do you got for us? Good morning. Thanks for letting me come on. I just want to add a little bit of color to the CBO talk. And yeah, they, they're correct that the numbers they're project, projecting are very conservative. But not only that, it's based on the numbers that they have available today. And they're not able to predict if there's going to be external factor like a war, which would totally throw everything totally out of whack. So everything you see from the CBO, it's very conservative and it's a lot of um, just hopeful thinking. As well, they're also projecting the debt to GDP. They're graphing it out. One thing to note, the GDP United States, a lot of this or a good a portion of this is due to the U.S. spending and pumping up their own GDP. With the war going on in Ukraine, the U.S. is spending a lot of money to, to replenish their supplies for ammunition and whatever else. And this is being directed right into U.S. industry and pumping up the GDP. So the U.S. is in a way, pumping up their own GDP by percentage, but it's being done more and more every year. So it's, it's just all a shell game, and all, all signs to me point this thing is going to collapse in a not-too-distant future. Yeah, it's, it's double accounting. Uh, it's like double accounting that they do, right? Like if you look at every single government employee, the government employee gets paid uh, by, uh, by increasing the deficit. And... Uh, but somehow that number gets double counted, right? Like if you work for the government and you get a government paycheck, uh, then uh, that's where the money's coming from. It's coming from the liability side. But yet uh, the money that you make is factoring towards a bullish GDP, which is insane. I mean, they're kind of canceling each other out. Yeah. yeah. And, and in terms of these forecasts, I mean, if anyone's a betting person, you know, what are you going to, if the CBO is the line on what debt to GDP is going to be 30 years from now, I think anyone is more likely going to take the over. At least that's what I would take. Brandon, did you want to yeah. add something? Yeah. And again, I mean, they're all, they're all just phenomenal points. And it just, you look at the double speak. Um, I mean, this is an account. A lot of things we see, I mean, look, you have the, the shadow stats, right? In the 1980, how we used to look at the CPI print. And everything has just been bastardized, you know. So I mean, nothing is what it seems. And then we just talked about the CBO numbers; they should be if you double or triple what they are. Um, you have this doesn't even account for off balance sheet items going on or or second balance sheet. I mean, people people don't even know how far how deep this goes. There's a lot of stuff we don't even see. We never get to see it. Well, we will never see it. Uh, and that's the things that that people just don't even understand how how deep this truly runs. And the thing that I, and I agree with. What Joe was saying, um, the tone, everyone, Sam was saying too. Like, I, I think it will be hard to implement CBDC. I think the, the thing that like Puppy is railing on all the time, and that that worries me is the, the dismissive nature. And I'm not saying anyone here is dismissive nature, but it's kind of the, the collective societal attitude of the dismissive nature of not talking, not bringing something up, something as 
threatening as a CBDC or things like that, this complete control, surveillance, you know, type of apparatuses. That's how these things happen. I mean, look at the Federal Reserve that we have today. That was what, this is the third bank we've had, the third central bank that keeps coming back. These things don't go away. You know, control and power never go away. It's a constant fight. And just dismissing it, it that's the wrong attitude. And again, no one here, I don't think, is doing that. That's why we're all here. But it's the collective like, societal attitude towards, you know what, I eh, don't need to worry about it. Don't need to think about it because it's not going to happen. It can't happen. Well, they just repackage it. You know, they just repackage it. They, they change it. They reword it. Like I said, they screw with the, the second balance sheet. They screw with the, the, how they determine the CPI print. They do all these things, is smoke and mirrors, to obfuscate reality. And that's where we get in these situations where now, you know, everyone that's been born, everyone that's living now has known nothing but fiat world. That's why it's so hard to orange build people in, in general, in a general sense, because we've only known as fiat world. So you're telling someone their entire life is a lie. A 90-year-old man, you're telling him his entire life was built on a lie. That's impossible to do, or, you know, it's, it's very hard to do until you're kicked in the face. And that's why these talks are so important to have with the majority of people, because they, it's built on this, you know, this false premise. And that's why the, the dismissive nature of just the societal attitude, I think that's what the thing that worries me the most of just saying, hey, it can't happen. It's going to be really hard. So uh, just, you know, don't worry about it. That's everything. That's the thing that concerns me the most. Right on, right on. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that people are saying it's going to be hard. And it seems like they have good reasons to say it's going to be hard. But I don't think that's uh, enough for us to, to rest our hat on. I think it, you know, certainly governments will use a crisis or other ways to do these implement these things that are quote, unquote, hard to implement. Um, let's go to uh, uh, sorry, I don't know who had their hand up. We'll go to Terrence first. And then after that, we'll go to TCB. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to point out that um, the Brookings Institute, which is highly respected, allegedly nonpartisan. I always laugh when they say they're nonpartisan. They're pretty left wing. And you can tell if you ever meet these folks that they're on the left of center. But anyway, one thing they said that was interesting to me that caused me to buy more Bitcoin now rather than, you know, DCA or waiting for 10,000 LLL is that they said the U.S. Treasury, well, the, the U.S. government will probably default um, for a week because of this uh, debt ceiling crisis that's happening. So that should cause uh, markets to go haywire. The Fed may have to do something, especially if it goes on longer than a week, where they'll come up with all sorts of ways to do QE, TARP, um, print me, whatever, cut rates. So that should be short-term uh, stimulative to Bitcoin. The debt ceiling crisis won't come to a head for a while. Um, but if and, if and when it does, and it probably will, um, expect a def technical default. And that, could, that can also cause a rush to U.S. dollars, not just Bitcoin, because those will be two of the perceived uh, risk-off assets when people go fight to safety. Yeah, but Terrence, but this is the main push by the government for a CBDC, right? Like the, the whole concept of a bank run mm -hmm. will no longer exist. There will be no ATM machines. They won't exist. There will be no line at the bank because you have nothing to withdraw if there's no cash. So before that happens, this is why they need that CBDC because like the, the whole <laughs> concept of a bank yeah. run goes to the history books. Now that's very possible. I definitely think there are some people 
for CBDC advocates and surveillance, um, government surveillance type people who are going to use the debt ceiling crisis and uh, any default technical or otherwise prolonged, protracted or short as an excuse to push CBDC. So people do need to be vigilant. I agree with all that. TCV, what do you got for us? Yeah, hey guys, thanks for having me up. Um, I was thinking of this when we're looking at those government numbers. It almost feels like that scene in Beautiful Mind when he's like doing math on the window and he's like crying because he can't get it to kind of match up. And it's like, imagine having total control of the equation and still not being able to make the numbers match. So you look at uh, how you invoked like the national debt clock. It's uh, like that $30 trillion debt number, but then you got 182 trillion in unfunded liabilities, which comes to about 500,000 plus per citizen. Uh, which is about $2 million if you picture like a family of four. And then also on that national debt clock, it shows like the savings per family is about just above $5,000. Just to say that like even their uh, official numbers are absolutely terrifying. So to like kind of just see where that's pushing us and to think that that's not going to push us into some kind of emergency scenario. So I agree with the idea that, hey, our processes have some protections in place. But what we've seen is, you know, the Constitution is invoked when it's convenient and it's ignored 95 percent of the time. So the idea that those those protections would all of a sudden protect us from a CBDC, obviously a CBDC is going to be um, implemented under some kind of emergency. Name your emergency. Right. So I would have also been able to say a few years ago, I don't think they're ever going to be able to shut every small business in the country constitutionally. And that would have been correct, right? All of a sudden, an emergency shows up, and they just, like, completely disregard all the chains that are supposed to, like, keep them accountable and hold them to the ground. So I was wondering what you guys think about that. I think it's it's obviously going to be an emergency implementation. It's not going to go under the, uh, like, normal constitutional process. Totally. And I, th- I think that's why, you know, Brandon and I are kind of making these points about – this it, it's things that seem not possible or you know goes against the charter goes against whatever governing document that that argument like works until it doesn't and there's a crisis and then they just find a reason to go against it and i mean tcb you mentioned the constitution and we don't have to get into that big time but i think that's a good point to bring up is because if you look at the things that the government spends money on uh, the biggest items in the U.S. federal budget, a lot of them were thought to be unconstitutional at some point. You know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, if you would have asked the people at the founding of this country, all of that would have been unconstitutional. And now not only do we spend money on it, but it's the largest things that we spend money on. So these things can change. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, maybe it's not easy. Maybe it's not the type of thing that someone just declares one day is going to happen. Maybe it takes a big crisis. Maybe it takes multiple big crises, but um, there's a history of them happening. So I think we should all be leery. Probably, what's up, man? Yeah, hey, look, I, yeah, Brad, I don't need to be like Debbie Down. I don't want to bring this stuff on. I, I just bring, you know, 50 years of, of life on this earth and watching what has unfolded since, you know, my childhood in the 70s and, and early 80s to what I've seen unfold in the past three years is nothing short of, um, uh, just amazing. Uh, when when you look at, if you would have told anyone four years ago, uh, look in Australia, New Zealand, they're going to have these mandatory camps um, because you you got this um, this COVID, all right. And I'm not going to get into numbers. It's 99% survival rate. But the forced the forced camps. When you when you when you look at Canada, 
uh, shutting down peaceful protests and bank accounts. Okay, everything has. It, it's not one thing in particular. I, I'm trying to take in the totality of all of this. All right, and when you see in the last three years, the organizations that are gaining the most power have the name World in front of them. All right, World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, and that's what that was. It it may. I, it may be totally wrong here. I'm just looking at the way things are going, the push for, oh, my God, you'd like to eat steak and eggs, you evil human being. You will eat the bugs. Get ready for, uh, you know what, cold showers. Cold showers, get used to that. Um, everything, all of these are from different attack vectors that are coming in. All right, and this is where Bitcoin, to me, is this sort of savior, okay? Because if these CBDCs do come true, all right, you're gonna want, it will be the black market currency for sure. And that's why I'm glad, you know, hey, we're, we need Texas Libman here in the beef initiative. I know I know when my my uh, monthly allotment of one pound of beef is up, I can go to him and he'll take some Bitcoin. What I'm saying is do some research and analyze the risk and have some Bitcoin in your life. Love you all. Bobby, to, to that point, too. Oh, sorry, John. I, to that point, too, it, what's scary, again, is you have kids now that have grown up. They're five years old, 10 years old. And that's all, that's what they know now. That's their reality is, oh, that's how life is. Government just says whatever and does whatever to us. And that's fine. That's, that's the reality. And that's like these knock on effects that people just don't see until it's too late. You have children that that's what they saw. They saw people wearing masks all over the place, being locked in their houses, seeing it on TV, seeing it in their own life. And that's those ramifications that we don't even get to see right now, right? The second to puppy's point, not spelled doom and gloom. Bitcoin is that hope from, from, as Bob Proctor would say, from great chaos and disorder comes great order and opportunity. So we'll leave it with that. Yeah, right on, right on. Good, good points being made here. Um, you guys made me think of a tweet I saw from James Lavish just uh, within the last 24 hours. Um, and he's great, by the way. I love the fact that he does not bite his tongue at all with uh, sharing his thoughts. And, you know, Pubby, you're saying who's benefited the most over the last few years, people with world at the beginning of their name. That is an interesting way to put it. And I think it's accurate. Um, but it reminded me of what James Lavish said since this is his tweet. Since 2020, the top 1% captured 26 trillion or two third of all new wealth created, while the one third was shared with uh, by the entire rest of the world put together. So you kind of look at what happened over the last few years, like this was wildly positive for these big intergovernmental unelected uh, agencies, uh, wild, wildly positive for people who already own massive amounts of financial assets, and not very positive for the average person, the average family who cares about uh, empowering themselves and being able to save their own wealth. Um, in a form of money that can't be debased away or censored. So uh, that's obviously, you know, a big reason why we all Bitcoin here. Um, but anyway, you made me think of that, that tweet, Pubby. And um, one other thing I'll just say is, pe you know, people talk about redistribution, and that can be a hot-button topic, right? People have different opinions. Even people who are more libertarian-minded might have different opinions of what's a good level of redistribution to have within a society, should it be at the federal level, the state level, your local level? Should it all be voluntary, et cetera, et cetera? Um, what, whenever that kind of topic comes up, I usually like to, to tell or just point out to people, hey, we do have lots of redistribution in the system today. And it's because of the monetary system, it's largely redistribution from the poor to the wealthy. 
So how about we get rid of that type of redistribution first, and then it's easier to have a conversation about other types of redistribution. All right, we've got five minutes left here. So we can, uh, I don't think I have any brand new topics to bring up. Oh, actually, you know what? I will bring up this one. Uh, this was in the news that I did not get to in the uh, beginning of the show here, but I thought uh, you guys might enjoy this one. This was a headline that read, Kim Kardashian, Floyd Mayweather, file motion to dismiss crypto promotion lawsuit. And I was just thinking to myself, imagine you're hearing about Bitcoin for the first time in like anywhere between 2013, 2017, and someone tells you that that's going to be a headline in 2023 you would be like, what the hell is that guy talking about? So I just read that headline this morning and I was laughing to myself. thought you guys might appreciate that. Um, okay, with four minutes left here, does anyone who is speaking have any topic that they wanted to hit on that we haven't covered yet? I think we did it all. Yeah, I just say um, we talked about this last week. Uh, when some of us, including myself, mentioned higher for longer, and given the numbers that are coming out, uh, it does look like the Fed will continue to raise rates or keep rates higher for longer than a lot of uh, doomers expected last year, including as recently as December, January. That is a fair point. I think if you ask most people uh, in the Bitcoin community a year or so ago, they probably would not have forecasted that Fed funds could get to the level it's where, uh, where it is now and continue to rise. So that is definitely a, a fair point that we need to acknowledge. Um, I will highlight one thing that I think we'll cover next week, and then maybe we can move to some closing comments. Um, Terrence, we'll, we'll take those as your closing comments, but let us know if you um, have others. Then maybe we can get closing comments from uh, Brandon, Pubby, and Tone. Um, but I just wanted to highlight one thing. Uh, for our Swan private clients last night, we had a conversation with Alan Farrington and Anders Larson about DeFi, how it's existed in its uh, current forms, and how it might exist in a, a Bitcoin world. So next Friday, we might end up talking about that a little bit. It's um, an interesting conversation that I think can go a lot of different directions. So I just wanted to preview that. Hopefully, we'll get Steven Lubka as part of that conversation because I think he has some interesting thoughts as well. Um, but with that, uh, Brandon, anything you want to share as closing comments? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, great uh, you know, session today, guys. Just appreciate it. Um, yeah, we, we were talking a little bit, uh, you know, getting a little down into the, you know, the I don't want to say negative, but just talking, you know, about some serious stuff today. And uh, like we, I was saying a minute ago, I mean, there's such great hope um, in the world because of Bitcoin and what we're all doing here. And it, just zooming out, seeing how amazing life is really um, just everywhere, um, you know, quite honestly, for, for the vast majority of people, fortunately, across the world. And uh, we have the ability now with this, what we're doing here, decentralized media, um, just social media in general, and then you know, Nostr and things like this becoming more and more decentralized. Decentralized money now, uh, you know, people, especially you know, in America, uh, can own uh, security, you know, whatever's firearms, ammo, stuff like that. Um, we we just have the ability. You can get food storage, you know, water filtration, things like to de de decentralize yourself and harden yourself and become resilient and, and independent. 
And the more you do that, the less you need government. You become a very hopeful person, actually, in, your, in trying what we're all doing here, trying to get people and pulling people to come our, our direction. And uh, so I'm very, very hopeful because never, I mean, for thousands and thousands of years, humans had no ability to do that. It was, you know, Genghis Khan came or the, the king or whoever and just rang your village over. You had nothing. You had no protection. There's no firearms. There's no ability to survive, you know, natural disasters because you just, it was very hard to do that. Uh, for different reasons. And now in, in some ways it was easier in a way, but now we have these abilities to do this at such a great scale. And many of us being very fortunate to live in America or maybe Western societies to be able to do that. Um, so do, do what you can to be prepared because you, you, you have this great confidence that comes over you when you're doing that. And then you're able to help others and you aren't part of the problem when shit does hit the fan because we all have been talked about a lot. Shit will hit the fan at some point and you'll be there to help instead of being you know, the one trying to hoard and run over other people. So have a great weekend. Right on. Thanks for that, Brandon. Thanks for all the thoughts today. I uh, really enjoyed it. Wide range of topics covered. Um, we are at 12 here, but Tone would love to hear any closing thoughts that you'd like to share. Uh, sure. just want to do a shout out to the, the Swamp Private event uh, that I recently attended. Thanks. Uh, shout out to John of Swamp Private to uh, send me the invite. And uh, that was great. I'm not going to dox where the event took place. Uh, uh, it was just great. You guys... Uh, uh, I mean, if you're a Swamp Private client and you're in one of those areas where a Swamp Private event takes place, definitely attend. Amazing people to meet. Uh, great panel. Uh, just awesome. It was a nice rooftop event. I'll leave it there. Awesome. Thank you for that, Tone. Yeah, the, we, tr we try to do a good job with those Swamp Private events. We bring in good uh, external speakers, uh, people like Tone, who have a lot of interesting things to share. So. If any, as we always say, if anyone is interested in learning more about Swan Private, please shoot me a DM, uh, shoot Alex Stanzik a DM, Steven, Terrence, et cetera, um, and we will um, tell you more about it. Um, okay, we are at 12.01 here. Pubby, final thoughts go to you. I'll make it, I'll make it quick. And just to sort of circle back into what Bitcoin is and what it represents, if, if, if you're new here and listening, um, many of us, have, of course, you, you, you jump in. The, the top of the, the rabbit hole is number go up. Number go up will get bring you, but then you fall in there and understand what it represents. And just a, a, a quick story was, uh, I remember as, at, at the Bitcoin conference, that I was talking to a Bitcoin, there was a no-corner with him, and it was like during the last day. And um, the no-corner had some questions, and he said, well, what, he, you know, what really stood out to you here over your weekend? He goes, to be quite honest with you, I didn't hear anyone talk about the price one time. What the, I, I thought I was going to come here and everything was just going to be moon talk, all this. No one talked about the price. Bitcoin is more than that, all right? It's more than just number go up. It's more than the price. It's the, it's the trust, but verified, all right? But verified. Trust in everything. The Bitcoiners the last three years have been right so far about everything. You know, trust the medical community, but you find out about diet and exercise. You know, trust these institutions, but verify. And that's what I just want to leave it with. Um, it's been my pleasure to be here for five years with all of you and all the time, everyone else volunteers. Um, love you all, man. Excellent, Pubby. Thank you for that. All right, we're a few minutes past the hour here, so we are going to wrap it up there. Uh, this was Cafe Bitcoin. Thank you, everyone, for joining. You can catch a recording of this on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, etc., where you usually get your podcasts. Uh, Cafe Bitcoin hosted by Swan, and we will be back on Monday at the usual time with your usual host, Alex Sanzik. So thanks again, everyone. Have a great weekend.